we're reading from the book of Esther again, and if you'd like to follow along, we're on page 5 or 7 of the Pew Bibles, and that's Esther chapter 9. We'll read from verses 1 to 10, and then from 16 to 19, and then thereafter Charles will read. Chapter 9. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews for fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parshandatha, Dalton, Apatha, Poratha, Adelai, Aradatha, Parmasatha, Arasai, Aradai, and Vesatha the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamandatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Verse 16. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and to get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. But the Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th day they rested and made a day of feasting and joy. This is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observed the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, that they should celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote to them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they'd begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the pure, that is, the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head. 
and that he and his son should be impaled on poles. Therefore these days were called Purim from the word pure. Because of everything written in this letter and because of what they'd seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should, without fail, observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family and in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. This is the word of the Lord. I'm sure you need uh, this passage in front of you as we look, and this is the last in our series on Esther, which I think we'll all agree has been quite a revelation. Now, because it's the summer, I'm going to treat you to my second joke. So, here it is. The late Frank Muir, the comedian, had a very gentle sense of humor. Perhaps some of you heard him on the radio. In his biography, he tells the true story of driving in his beautiful classic car. It was a Lagonda, which are those with the wonderful bonnets that stretches out in front of you. And as he steered into a corner, a beaten-up Morris Minor coming the other way nearly hit his much-loved car. And the driver wound down their window and shouted at him, Pig! Frank Muir was furious with the driver and their near miss. So he turned the corner and hit a pig. Well, the story of Esther does have a connection because it has many twists and turns and surprises. There's my link with my story. But we've now reached the end in these last two chapters, which we've entitled A Time to Celebrate. So this service is actually a celebration. You'll see that in what we're singing. To recap briefly, for those of you who have not kept up or not been here, Queen Esther was married to Xerxes, king of Persia, who ruled a vast empire. And the most powerful civil servant, the number two to the king, was a man called Haman, who hated Mordecai, a Jew, who was Esther's cousin. However, Mordecai overheard a palace plot against the king and saved the king's life. And eventually he was rewarded, and with Esther's help and influence, Haman's plan to annihilate the Jews was revealed, and Haman was executed and replaced by Mordecai. However, as we saw last week, Haman had tricked King Xerxes into passing an edict to kill the Jews. And a royal edict sealed with a royal signet ring was irreversible. And the solution was to pass a second edict, also irreversible, which empowered the Jews to defend themselves against the total annihilation Haman had planned. And this second edict, as we saw last week, was sent by mounted couriers who rode, chapter 8, verse 10, fast horses especially bred for the king. And here in chapter 9, we see, verse 1, the tables were turned. The details of the first half of the story are now balanced when they're clear reversal in the second half. Confronted with two conflicting edicts issued in the king's name, the edicts of Haman to kill the Jews and of Mordecai to stand up and defend yourselves, the governors follow the edict of the current regime, which is what, of course, all careful officials will do faced with a similar choice. Who is in power? 
do what they tell you. Verse 3, all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Well, it seems a very long time ago and very distant to where we are in 21st century London, a capital city, with all sorts of other issues. What can we take from this passage that's been read to us? Well, the first one to take is this. There is a war on, and we're called to be obedient to God's word. There's a war on, we're called to be obedient to God's word. Now, there is a context for Haman's hatred of Mordecai. It's only revealed if we do some digging. Haman is described in chapter 3, verse 1, as the son of an Agagite. Agar, Agag, was king of the Amalekites. Why is that significant? At the very time when Israel was escaping from Egypt and at its most vulnerable, Deuteronomy 25 records this. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When the Lord gives you rest from all the enemies round you in the land he's giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. And Exodus chapter 17 records the Amalekites attacking the Israelites at Rephidim. You remember the story. Joshua goes out to attack them and fights with them. Moses stands on the hill, and so long as his hands are held up, they win. And when he lures them, uh, they lose. So Aaron and Hur hold up his hands so that they win their great battle. Joshua overcame the Amalekite army by the sword. But the story doesn't end there. For King Saul was given instructions by God through the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 15. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go and attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Saul attacked the Amalekites and he won a great victory. But... Saul and the army spared Agag, the king, and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Now, why is that serious? Well, Saul had been given specific instructions to destroy all that stood against God himself. But in fact... They'd only done so for the despised and the weak. Saul argued that the best had been reserved for sacrifice to the Lord. I'm rather doubtful about that. I think he'd kept it for himself. And he tried to shift responsibility from himself to the army. He said, no, it wasn't my fault, it was their fault. Another sign of weakness, I think you'd agree. But God spoke through the prophet Samuel. I'm grieved that I've made Saul king because he's turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Saul tries to defend himself. Samuel will have none of it. And quoting from Psalm 40 declares, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. 
And then, in the most crushing of statements, Samuel says, Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And Saul then said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. And then he explains why it happened. I was afraid of the people, and so I gave in to them. Very telling, isn't it? Very human. One of the strongest temptations for any leader is to want to be liked and to want to please others, when in fact, difficult decisions have to be taken. Or, as here, a leader can simply be afraid to do the right thing, as Saul admitted he was. Now, have you kept up with me? Why have we gone into this background? It's because of one short phrase in our passage in Esther 9. It's repeated three times. And if something is repeated in Scripture, it's saying this is significant. And the passage it makes no sense on its own unless you understand the context. Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin, so was Mordecai, who now continued the war against the Amalekites led by Haman. Haman's, Mordecai's refusal to bow to Haman was because of this long-standing enmity between Israel and the Amalekites, so Mordecai is to fight round two in the battle. What was the significant phrase? When overcoming the Amalekites and defeating them in chapter 9, they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Verse 10, verse 15, and verse 16. They did not lay their hands on the plunder, unlike disobedient Saul. Xerxes gave them permission to do so, chapter 11, 8, verse 11, but they learned from Saul's failure to obey and to heed God's instructions. They were not going to reject God's word like Saul had. They were going to obey it. It's a very telling thing, isn't it, of a spiritual leader. Do they want to please God or people? How does this apply? For we're certainly not fighting for our lives. But we need to be aware that there is a war on. It's a spiritual battle. But it's just as real. Paul graphically describes it in Ephesians 6. Finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it's not against battles and rulers in that way, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after having done everything, to stand. Do you take the point? We are in a battle, but it's a spiritual battle. It's a real battle. It's one that Christians have had to fight always of a world which refuses to obey or to take any notice of Almighty God. And we are faced with a similar choice in our day. Are we going to give in to the cultural and social pressures because we're afraid? Or are we going to seek to obey God and the word of the Lord? 
Just to take one example, the Great Commission that, in fact, I didn't know uh, Mary Lois alluded to it, we're called to make disciples of all nations. And often that process begins, as it did with me, with a question. I asked a friend a question. Now, as a disciple of Jesus, are we to be silent disciples and witnesses because our culture is becoming increasingly intolerant of anyone sharing their faith? Of course we have to be sensitive. Of course we have to be careful. Peter's instruction still applies. In your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have Do this with gentleness and respect. So if somebody comes up to you inconveniently at work and asks you a question about your faith, do you say, I'm terribly sorry, that's very inconvenient. Uh, Let's talk about it at another time. Or do you, with gentleness and respect, Be prepared to give an answer to the question that they've asked for the reason for the hope that you have. We are people of hope. And we're living amongst people who are living in despair. You see, if Christians are restricted restricted to speaking about their faith uh, and only doing so in church, it's rather like saying you can only speak about books in a library or cars in a garage. And actually, that's what happened under communist regimes, interestingly. Now, I'm not saying we're in that position yet. I'm just saying that sometimes we're faced with a choice, and it's the choice of Saul or of Mordecai. Are we going to obey the words of the Lord or seek to please people? That's the first thing that I think we can see from this passage The second theme is remember God's faithfulness and trust him. Remember God's faithfulness and trust him. A central purpose of the whole book of Esther is to record the reason for the annual festival of Purim. It was to keep fresh in the memory of later generations the wonderful deliverance of the Jewish people in the reign of King Xerxes. And as we saw before, the background to the book of Esther is the ongoing hostility of the Amalekites in Israel It began at the Exodus, and it continued. The Amalekites, as I read, were the first to attack Israel on their departure from Israel, Egypt, and they were thus seen in the words of the study Bible, the New International Version, as the epitome of all the powers of the world arrayed against God's people. Haman's edict is the final major effort in the Old Testament period to destroy them. Now, there's no wonder there was a spontaneous festival of celebration, verse 27, which Mordecai formalized, verse 31, into an annual occasion. And it was named the festival of Purim from the word pure, verse 24, meaning the casting of a lot. For Haman cast the lot to decide the day and month for the annihilation of all the Jews in the Persian Empire, chapter 3, verse 7. So this festival was not a about a military victory or vengeance carried out on enemies. Rather, it was an expression of the community's joy and gratitude. It was designed to remind one generation of what they'd actually seen and experienced and remind succeeding generations of their wonderful deliverance by God. Verse 22, 
It was also the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy, their mourning into a day of celebration. And that phrase, relief from their enemies, includes the idea of the rest that God promised to Israel. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land, he's giving you to possess as an inheritance. And so the defeat of Haman brings rest to God's people. Next week, God willing, I'm on holiday and I'm going to have a rest. It's a wonderful thing. So they remember both the deliverance by God with joy and gratitude and that now they're unable to enjoy his promised rest. Now this idea of rest is picked up in Hebrews 3. So there is a New Testament application and so there's an application for you and me. This is what's right written. As the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness when your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray. They have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. He's quoting Psalm 95, which summarizes a dark period in Israel's history when Moses was leading them in the desert. And so the writer to the Hebrews is looking uh, back to the Exodus, the time of the psalmist, and now to their own time. And he uses the example of Israel under Moses to warn them against unbelief and disobedience. And the author of Hebrews applies the psalmist's warning to those reading his letter. And again, as the study Bible shortly declares, the warning also applies today. See to it, brothers, the writer continues, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We're here in church to encourage one another, to be faithful. That's why I come. If you leave church discouraged, that's rather not the purpose. And so there's another opportunity for us to renew our trust in God, to believe all that he has done for us in Christ. We're to continue in that faith to the very end of our lives. And the rest that the Hebrew, the writer of the Hebrews is describing is not the rest of the Israelites in the promised land, but Just as entering that rest demanded faith in God's promise, so our spiritual and eternal rest is entered by faith in Jesus and what he achieved for us on the cross. Nothing less than peace with God. We sang about it. So we too are called to remember with joy and gratitude, not annually, but at every communion, as we're going to celebrate in a minute, every Sunday, every day, God's promise of spiritual and eternal rest. Now there is that haunting question. What's the state of your heart? Is it hardened to refuse to listen to or obey God as they did in Exodus? Will we have sinful and unbelieving hearts that turn away from God? Can we encourage one another as we continue to belong to him and enjoy all the blessings that come? 
It's a wonderful thought. And that's true of us. As we, as adopted sons and daughters, we can celebrate with joy and gratitude all that God has done for us. And that's my second theme. There's a war on, obey God's word, remember God's faithfulness and trust him. And the third theme, again, which was picked up wonderfully in our prayers, is play your part. Play your part. Well, there is something of the soap opera in Esther, uh, in the book of Esther, but we mustn't overlook something very serious. For it witnesses actually to an early genocide or holocaust of the Jews. Haman, chapter 3, looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes, the whole of Persia, his vast empire. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, on a single day and to plunder their goods. How could God rescue his people if they'd literally been wiped from the face of the earth? Events in this Persian city of Susa appeared to undermine God's planned purpose in redeeming his people. The study Bible again says, the future existence of God's chosen people and ultimately the appearance of the Redeemer Messiah were jeopardized by Haman's edict to destroy the Jews. That's why I think the book of Esther is in the Bible. Because it tells us no matter how powerful the forces ranged against God and his people, they will never prevail. Even when it appeared as if they may thwart God's ultimate plan for humanity, the sending of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But the whole story of rescue and deliverance depends on one person, Esther. Although Mordecai expresses the confidence that relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place if Esther fails. And yet, who knows, but that you, Esther, have come to royal position as the queen for such a time as this. You see, God uses individuals in his plans and purposes. Those who are obedient to him in spite of the cost. When faced with a choice, my way or God's way, they choose God's way. Unlike Saul. And isn't that true of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? I don't know if you've ever noticed the stained glass window at the back. It's of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's kneeling and he's praying and he's in agony. Because he's faced with a real choice. And he knew what the cost was. Nothing less than being God forsaken. Which is why he said... Take this cup of suffering from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, there's a current thinking that our problems are so complex, one person can't make any difference. Paul disagreed. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And the story of Esther challenges us by her faithfulness and obedience, even endangering her own life. And as a result, this festival of joy and of gratitude to God, the festival of Purim, 
celebrating the Jews' deliverance is continued to this day. Barbara Dingle will confirm that to me. It is. They have never forgotten it. And we must never forget God's love for us as we take the bread and the wine. That's how much you are loved. And the question, the haunting question of, of Esther is, will we be equally faithful and obedient, trusting in God no matter what the cost? A world Paul described as without hope and without God in the world. And the parable of the persistent widow, you'll remember, is told by Jesus to show them that they should always pray and not give up. You remember the judge didn't care for people or God, but he gave in to the persistent widow because she kept praying for justice. But at the end of the parable, in a breathtaking moment, Jesus asked a question which is addressed directly to you and me. When the Son of Man comes... Will he find faith on the earth? Only we can answer that question. We know Esther's answer and Mordecai's. But what is yours? Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for the book of Esther, a time of celebration and thanksgiving and joy, but also remembering. And as we come to communion in a moment, would you help us to celebrate and be filled with joy at your faithfulness, your love, from one generation to another. Amen. So we stand to sing a wonderful...